Hi, everybody. Stephanie Rupert here. Thank you for tuning in to the Meaning of Everything podcast, where we entertain truly revolutionary ideas. Today is episode number 26X, and I'm going to be addressing the question, why do people hate science or distrust science? I am very much looking forward to getting into this topic today, so I will try to be brief in my notes. As you all know, this is an X episode, and so I have a winner for the book giveaway. Her name is Alexis Jones, and she actually also inspired me to do one of my X episodes that I haven't aired yet on confidence and purpose and motivation and sort of talking about my own personal experience and recommendations about those sorts of things. So that will come out eventually. Thank you very much, Alexis, for asking those kinds of questions. I think that that's very important, especially in light of some of the conversations we've been having recently about self-esteem and significance. In episodes 21 and 24, I believe, we did a lot of talking about self-esteem and significance. So do check those out and that X episode will be forthcoming at a later date and congratulations to Alexis. I do not yet know which book she will choose, but the list has expanded. So if you're interested in figuring out what kind of books you want to be reading or might want to pick, if you get chosen for the giveaway, which isn't too hard to do, head over to stephanieruper.com slash book giveaway. If you want to enter, just write a review of the podcast, take a screenshot and send it to TMO everything at gmail.com could literally take you 14 seconds, even less, 14 seconds, plus or minus six seconds. Okay, so that is that today, 26X, what's up with people's disregard for science? You know, why Why is that a thing? That's definitely what I want to be talking about today. Now, if you listen to episode number 26, which was delightful, I had on Harry Collins, who's a British professor, sociologist of science. He studies the processes of science and the public perception of in relationship with science. And he basically argues that we need to take very seriously science as an institution that has and conveys values. And that there isn't some sense, there is some sense in which science can help preserve these kinds of values, which have a lot of overlap with values of democracy, can help preserve them over time. These kinds of values are open-mindedness, willingness to correct yourself, right? Seeking better, better information over time, wanting to do the best you can with the information that you have, right? All those sorts of things, a, tr- a loyalty to truth and reporting your results honestly, all these sorts of things. And so if we prioritize science as a society, if we more rigorously embed it within our decision-making processes, within our politics, and actually within our political institutions, as Professor Collins proposes, then we may perhaps be able to save some of these values that are so much falling out of our public life, catastrophically falling out of our public life. You know, they're, they're really struggling. So that's all brilliant. I do recommend checking it out. Um, And today I want to sort of move forward a little bit more with this conversation about why people distrust science and why, why is there distrust and trust was something we talked about in episode 21, another one I highly recommend. I also gave a talk 
related to this, very seriously related to this here at Oxford a few weeks ago, although now by the time this podcast airs, it will have been a few months ago. You can find it on YouTube um, on my channel, youtube.com slash Stephanie Ruper, or just Google it. You can find it. And it's called Can Science Cause Fundamentalism? How Science Causes Fundamentalism. And basically, I talk about the parts of what it means to be human and parts of the history of our culture that have caused people to, many people, to hate science. And some people to really love it, but some people to really hate it. And we're very polarized on the issue, and I think, I think for good reason. So I have a slew of reasons that people distrust science that I want to address and, and they're all kind of different, but inter, interwoven, obviously, in society. So first and foremost is the one that I discussed in the talk that I gave that's posted on YouTube. And it's the fact that science is felt as a threat to people's worldviews. You know, historically, we don't talk about this very often, but I think we all kind of know that science is an institution, it is a practice that can and very much has, can rob us and very much has robbed us of some of the ideas that we once cherished most, right? Things like God, absolute morality, the soul, am I a coherent self? The question, am I a coherent self? Is Stephanie Ripper a coherent self for all of human history was pretty much, yes, the answer was yes, except for in some threads in Buddhism and some other various places. Yes, of course I'm a self. That has been my experience. I have memories. I have a narrative. I have a constant stream of thoughts running through my head. I am Stephanie Ruper. Actually, science is significantly challenging this idea right now and is sort of suggesting that we're all just a conglomeration of molecules that have the illusion that we're a real self, but our memories aren't really stable. We kind of make them up. And our stream of consciousness thinking isn't indicative of some concrete reality, but is instead just a phenomenon of how the brain works. And a bunch of really cool experiments have been done to demonstrate that our consciousness is not really all that unitary. We just think it is. So that is one example of a belief that some of us probably cherish a lot right now, that science is significantly challenging and disrupting and forcing us to confront. And there have been many of these kinds of ideas throughout history that science has been one. It hasn't been the only thing, but it has been one thing that has really forced people to question their beliefs. Darwin in particular, in the middle of the 1800s, radically shook our perception of, of who we are as a species and how we're located in the cosmos and do we have a relationship with God and what is God's role anymore if God doesn't create stuff? That's a huge question. And so, yes, to reiterate, there have been other things and many scholars will point out that science was at this time, many was well-received by theologians. Many people in religion embraced Darwin's ideas at the get-go. But I do think that over time, over decades, people began to realize just what a theological problem this could pose. And to reiterate, the science is deeply wrapped up in the politics. So, for example, in the United States, for decades after the Civil War, 
liberal and conservative churches in Protestantism had fights about stuff. There was increasing tension about the way things should be done. And the politically conservative branches were those that were also more theologically conservative. And these political differences really did matter. But so did the challenges from philosophy and from science that were really posing a threat to how people interpret the Bible, right? It sort of takes away a lot of options. Basically now, if you want to be scientifically coherent, the only way to interpret the Bible is symbolically. It's about stories and you can play with the metaphysics a little bit. But it's, it's very hard these days to be a biblical literalist and impossible if you believe in science. And this is how fundamentalism became a thing in part against the threat of science and other institutions, again, like philosophy that challenged people to question their liberal beliefs, people created the concept of fundamentalism. There was a series of essays published in 1910 by a pastor named Ruben Torrey who called the fundamentals. And then 10 years later, a guy named Curtis Lee Laws coined the term fundamentalism and fundamentalist coined these terms to describe the fundamentalist movement. That was something that they self-described themselves as. And we've since adopted the term to, to be more broadly applied, but it initially had this very specific sense of people who are willing, and these are Laws's word, to do battle royal for the fundamentals, which included a literal interpretation of the Bible. And people did this in part because they felt threatened by the way that science interacted with their sense-making with their worlds. And that has continued to this day and become deeply entrenched and hateful. And there have, has grown a deeply polarized other side. People either, you either love science or you hate it. There's very few people who sit somewhere in the middle, right? But we have to understand that these communities of people, many of the communities of people, not all of them, not the anti-vaxxers, so to speak, and that sort of conspiracy theorist type community, but many of the communities who have a religious opposition to science do so because we know and we feel deeply that science is something that threatens those kinds of beliefs. And when people feel threatened, the way to change the world is not to yell at them and call them stupid and tell them that, you know, they're weak or dumb and they're not. You know, they're humans who can have really nice values, who can have really nice communities, who can have very smart ideas, right? But they're born into worlds that provide a certain system of meaning and sense. And science is a piece of our institution, a piece of our public life that threatens it. And so we cannot approach these communities like atheists currently do, like a lot of people love science currently do, in a way that mocks them. It's ridiculous and it's not at all productive. I'm looking at you, Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and that all that sort of rhetoric, it's deeply, deeply unhelpful and is only making things worse. A, threat. B, we have institutional distrust, period. We don't trust anything anymore and that's for so many reasons. There is a deep philosophical tradition of distrust. And this comes in part from the search. So 
there was once a religious worldviews where people certainly believed things. You just, you had certainty and that was fine. And everybody kind of believed it in the vicinity of the same thing. And then, then people began to really like math and really like experiments. And they began to trust their own reason over and above the authority of the revealed word, right, of the church. And people also began to be able to print books in their own languages and spread these ideas. And all of a sudden, people really trusted their own reason and logic and thought for themselves, which is great. But these were the seeds of the 1600s, right, the Protestant Reformation, when religion began to change and morph into many different forms and new sects were prop, uh, popping up all over Europe. This was the seed, an important seed, of the institutional distress that we have today. Very important, obviously, to dislodge the authority of the Catholic Church that reigned for you know, many, many centuries. And then people were looking for ways, new ways to have firm foundations for knowledge. We were looking for new ways to be certain. And I talk about certainty and uncertainty all the time. You can find it in many of my various podcasts. We were looking for ways to be certain and philosophy never found them. Philosophy really just never found these ways to be certain. And so then they began to realize, the philosophers began to realize that, that maybe you couldn't be certain and then developed something called the hermeneutics of suspicion which was an interpretive strategy that basically said, when you read a book, you have to be suspicious, you know, of everything and the author's intent of your intent of all these sorts of things, which is true. If you want to get at the truth, so to speak, you have to be suspicious. Now these things were happening in philosophy in part because they were becoming a part of our culture, right? There's always a question, chicken and egg, does philosophy happen first or does culture happen first? I think they co-happen. I think they co-occur and feed one another. And so, this is one source of institutional distress, but there are many others. Harry Collins, in the last episode of this podcast, mentioned capitalism. But I honestly think we would have a very similar problem if we had more governance, you know, we had more regulation, because here we have learned that institutions that we once thought held the same values as us and maybe did hold the same values of us because they were deeply embedded in our local communities and they were accountable to local communities and people trusted them and loved them and banks, for example, right? They were much more local. And now we know that no bank, well, except for maybe some co-ops, but most banks aren't out there to help us. They might say so in their mission statement, but we know, we know that they're not. We know that they like making money. We know that they have boards of investors and, they all demand income, and this is in a part of a capitalist system, and it is also basically human in the context of a hyper-individualistic Western culture. And so we have, we have learned that these people don't have our best interests at heart. They have their best interest in heart, and their best interests are not currently to serve our best interests, which might have been the case when our economies were smaller. But like I said, I if we had rigorous government control or oversight, we, we would have very little reason to trust them as well, right? And then we've seen those, we've seen examples of that sort of thing happen all over the world throughout history, that people, we have kind of learned, we have become disillusioned, people like power and 
money is power and governance is power and will people will often serve their own powers right they'll serve their own interests whether they're in the government or whether they're in industry and so we're in this position in which we understand that we feel deeply that people aren't there to help us and obviously now we have more media that likes to be very alarmist and we also have media that can show us a lot more things and media that can have its own biases, right? Its own interests at heart. And those are all very significant reasons that we distrust everything. You know, literally everything. We don't know who to trust. We don't even know if we can trust ourselves. Now that we know that humans are so biased and how do we know truth and our memories are fake, we're often constantly creating our own memories. And so we have seriously eroded foundations to truth we have seriously eroded sources of authority people that can tell us events that happened right our trust in governments or trust in media and our trust therefore our trust in science although i think professor harry collins is quite right that science is one of the few institutions in our society that is still holding on to values of truth and objectivity and that's in part because science in order for science to work, in order for technologies that are developed to work, they must cohere with reality. They must work, right? And if they don't work, nobody's going to believe it. And so science in this way is rigorously pushing us to stay loyal to some, some kind of truth So, insofar as we can access truth. And I'm as doubtful and skeptical as probably more doubtful and skeptical than most people, anybody, really. I'm the paragon of the modern age, one of the paragons of the modern age. And it's become so easy now with social media to, and the influx of information, the deluge of information in the internet and the like to be overwhelmed and not know who to trust and, and all those sorts of things. And what do we do about it? Well, I've done a number of podcasts about what to do about it. And I like Harry Collins's idea about holding up science and yes, science is flawed and yes, people can have their own interests in science. And this is something that again, the anti-vax community and conspiracy communities are often saying is science is, is politically influenced and it is to an extent, but to reiterate science won't work unless it coheres to some objective of truth. And therefore this, this value endures in science while in other institutions in the West, it is crumbling. So I think that that's something really significantly worth reflecting on. And I, I can leave it at that for now, and, and we'll pick up this discussion at another point in time. But it's important, you know, it's arguably the most important thing that we, that we have going on in, in our world today. So this has been episode number 26. Please do let me know what you think. I am, I am deeply, deeply interested. I will be back next week, of course, with some more exciting episodes, some more really, really good insight into who we are as a species, how we function. I will be having on a guest, uh, guests forthcoming, discussing uh, literature and how we're affected by it and how that helps us form our ideas and our feelings and intersects with political landscapes, which is really exciting. So do stick around and do stay in touch. Okay. Thank you so much. Take care.